Good morning. Assalamu alaikum. I don't think I'll actually answer the question necessarily that I pose in my, the title of my paper. Uh, but before I begin, I want to thank Nick and Jane and the Ibn Arabi Society for inviting me. Uh, I want to thank Zaytuna also for hosting and, and all of the people that Zachary thanked. I want to thank them too. He sort of mentioned them. He seems to know all of the people who contributed to this. So I share my thanks uh, with him. And I want to thank him also for his very beautiful paper that I enjoyed very much this morning. I'm very happy to be here. It was very difficult to get here for me yesterday, but as we know, any place that's really worth getting to, there's a hard and long path to get there. So I'm very happy to be here. So Mariam, pious saint, uh, pious woman, saint, or prophet. The stories of Mary and Jesus in the Quran are theologically rich and complicated, despite their relative brevity as compared to the accounts of other major figures, such as Moses or Abraham. And the Quranic accounts of Mary and Jesus, considered both separately and together, are boundary pushers. They stretch the limits of how we theologically conceive of the divine and the human, of man and woman, of saint and prophet, and in some places make ambiguous the existential boundaries between these categories. The Quran tells us that Jesus is a human messenger, yet it ascribes to him several miraculous abilities that make him seem at least a bit superhuman, if not divine. An idea not lost to Ibn Arabi, uh, who in some places mentions that one of the extraordinary qualities of uh, Jesus was precisely that he was mistakenly considered uh, by some, in other words, uh, certain Christians, to be God himself. Not only is he able to escape this world through a means other than death, at least for the time being, but he is able to raise the dead, a decidedly divine prerogative, and perhaps most strikingly is able to form a clay bird, a bird in the, uh, clay in the shape of a bird, and then breathe on it and bring it to life which is an act unmistakably reminiscent of God's creation of Adam. Of course, the Qur'an embeds the mention of these miracles in repeated assertion that this all takes place by God's permission, but even so, these extraordinary parallels to uniquely divine actions are matters which seem to invite reflection. The Qur'an describes Mary as a righteous woman, Siddiqa, a term sometimes also used for saint, or wali, but she is also described in ways that might seem to take her beyond this category and, in fact, to approach the category of prophethood or nabuwa. She is born miraculously as a result of the prayer of her mother. She is uniquely protected from the touch of Satan, an idea which comes very close to the notion of esma or the protection that in Sunni tradition is attributed only to the prophets. She is granted several miracles, some of them bestowed in private, but some witnessed by others. And she even serves as a kind of guide for the prophet Zechariah, albeit a largely passive one. And of course, she brings God's word into the world when it is cast upon her by the angel Gabriel, the angel of revelation, which she then delivers to her people, albeit silently. And finally, of course, she is a named figure in the Qur'an, a distinction usually, not completely, usually held by prophets, 
and is implicitly included among the prophets, a list of prophets, a series of prophets mentioned in both Surahs 19, the surah named after her, Surah Maryam, uh, and in Surah 21, Al-Anbiya. And yet mainstream Islamic doctrine, following Quran 1643, holds that prophets are always male. وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ إِلَّا رِجَالًا we only sent before you, meaning Muhammad, men, using this word rijal, which is gendered, um, to whom we had, uh, or whom we had inspired. So on this basis, Islamic tradition generally holds that prophets are only male, uh, but then again, the servants and devotees of the Jewish temple were also only male, and Mary, as we know, crosses this boundary as well. These ambiguities provide rich opportunities for reflecting on the chronic view of the potentialities of the human state and the ability of human beings to transcend the ordinary limits of their humanity, and in the case of Mariam, their gender. But these opportunities for reflection are rarely pursued at great length in Islamic thought and indeed are often submerged out of a concern to maintain a certain degree of doctrinal purity with regard to these various categories, and with good reason. One might argue, for in other parts of the Qur'an, these boundaries are clearly affirmed. Jesus, son of Mary, was only a servant. The male is not as the female. The question of Jesus' miracles approximating divine prerogatives is generally not a conversation starter in an Islamic context. But the question of Mary and her status as a pious woman, a saint, or a prophet has indeed engaged some of the prominent intellectuals and religious scholars of the Islamic world. For some, such as Fakhreddin Razi, she represents the paradigmatic case of sainthood or walaya. And for a small number of others, including the Andalusians Ibn Hazm and the Mufassir al-Qurtubi, also uh, from Andalusia, Mariam is a prophet de facto, if not de jure. Given, the idea, given that the idea that Mariam was a prophet seems to have been viewed favorably, at least in some Andalusian circles, and given that the debate about her status seems to offer a perfect case for the exploration of the relationship between prophethood and sainthood, a relationship that was a major concern for Ibn Arabi, as we know, one might expect that this is an issue that Ibn Arabi would have been keen to address in his works. Yet as far as I can see, and I have to say, when Nick invited me here, I said I'm not an expert in Ibn Arabi, um, but as far as I have been able to see, uh, he does not address this issue directly. And I think it would be very hard to argue definitively that Ibn Arabi considered Mary to be a prophet. Significantly, of course, she is not included in his famous study of the Quranic prophets, Al-Fusus al-Hikam. She's mentioned in there in the chapter on Jesus, of course, but not, she doesn't have a chapter devoted to her. But in this work, as well as in the Futuhat al-Makiyah, he does make some rather intriguing statements about Mary that seem to impinge on this debate, and in some ways to make it more complex and ambiguous than it already is, on the basis of the Quranic statements I just mentioned. So in the rest of this paper, I want to examine what Ibn Arabi does say about Mary and her uh, really unusual case. If there is one category into which Ibn Arabi consistently puts Mary, it is in the category of those who have attained the state of spiritual perfection, Kamal or Kamaliyah. 
In multiple contexts and for multiple purposes, Ibn Arabi cites the well-known Hadith of the Prophet, which says that many men attain to the state of spiritual perfection, but among those spiritually perfected persons, there were only two women, Maryam and Asiya, the wife of Pharaoh. And this hadith, of course, seems to echo the Qur'an's own presentation of these two women as examples of true believing women in contrast to the wives of Noah and Lot. One clear statement of this occurs in Ibn Arabi's discussion of the elusive spiritual category of the abdal, that is, the, the 40 saints who exist at all time, and when one dies, another comes and replaces them. The name abdal um, relates to that. He says, know that silence is one of the four pillars, arkan, by which men and women are considered abdal. Someone asked, how many are the abdal? He said, 40 souls, nafsin. He was then asked, why didn't you say 40 men, rajulan? He said, because there may be women among them. And this is similar to what the Prophet said regarding spiritual perfection, kamal. When he mentioned that they, that is the perfected ones, also existed among women, and he specifically mentioned among them Maryam bint Imran and Asiya, the wife of Pharaoh. It's the end of Ibn Arabi's words. Uh, We will return to the importance of silence as a spiritual quality related to perfection at the end of this paper, when we discuss the role that silence plays in the Quranic account of Mary. But for now, we cite this passage as a clear statement from Ibn Arabi that women can reach a very high spiritual or saintly saintly status, even if he does not use the word saint, waliya, to refer to Mary here or anywhere else that that I could find yet. Um, Despite Ibn Arabi's clear assertion of the possibility of female spiritual perfection, however, this assertion seems to rest uncomfortably with two other ideas about gender that are important in Ibn Arabi's thought. First, the Quranic assertion that men have a degree, daraja, over women, an idea that he takes very seriously and repeats in numerous contexts. And second, the metaphysical importance of the female as the locus of receptivity rather than activity. And of course, he accepts the traditional hierarchy between activity and receptivity, even if he sees them both as indispensable and complementary to one another. Indeed, Ibn Arabi rarely mentions the notion of female spiritual perfection without some reference to the degree that men have over women, according to the Quranic verse. In a lengthy passage in the Futuhat al-Makkiyah, Ibn Arabi discusses what he considers to be, or uh, his description of the best or the choicest manifestations in several spiritual categories. So he tells us that among the divine names, God has chosen the name Allah, in other words, as the best. Uh, Among the celestial realities, he's chosen the throne. Among the months, he's chosen Ramadan. Among the days, he's chosen uh, Friday. Among the nights, he's chosen Laylatul Qadr. Among the surahs, he's chosen Yasin, and so on and so forth. And he goes on, there are many of these uh, categories. And among this list, we find an assertion that the best of all human beings are the messengers, Rusul. That the best of men, that is male human beings, is Muhammad. 
and that the best women are Mary and Asya. Again, uh, repeating this idea of, uh, of their spiritual perfection. He says, as for his choosing Mary and Asya, this is on account of his attributing spiritual perfection to them, which is normally only for men, despite the existence of the degree that men have over them. For verily this degree is existential and does not change. As the choicest among women, we might note that Ibn Arabi would seem to put Mary and Asya in a class similar to that of the messengers and alongside Muhammad as the best of men. Nonetheless, female perfection, he asserts, does not nullify the degree that separates men and women hierarchically. Rather, spiritual perfection is attained in spite of this disparity. In another interesting passage, Ibn Arabi mentions the spiritual perfection of Mary and Asiya as the basis for accepting the possibility that women might contribute in important and substantial ways to the rites and rituals of religion. But he begins by giving an explanation of how this spiritual perfection might exist alongside woman's degree of deficiency. Indeed, women are not restricted from spiritual perfection, even if woman is deficient by a degree relative to men. For this degree is related to her creation because she was created from him, that is from man, from Adam, right? The, re referencing the creation of Eve from Adam. Uh, but this places no burden on her with regard to the attaining of spiritual perfection. For verily, man, who is Adam, was created from dust, and he is associated with dust, while Eve's creation is from man, and so therefore uh, she is associated with man. But just as the dust does not prevent Adam from achieving perfection, neither does her derivation from man, according to Ibn Arabi, uh, uh, take away from a woman's possibility of reaching spiritual perfection. Uh, and continuing with his words, he says, God gives an example of this with regard to women in that he made her a source of religious legislation. And here, uh, and in this case, it is Hajar, peace be upon her, mother of Ishmael, who went between Safa and Marwa hurriedly in the midst of the valley seven times, looking for a source of water because of the thirst afflicting her son Ishmael, from which he, she feared he might perish. And the hadith about this is well known. Thus, God made the action of Hajar hurrying between Safa and Marwa a legal requirement among the rituals of the Hajj. Thus, despite her degree of deficiency, woman can be a source not only of law, but even of sacred ritual. For when the pilgrims perform the rite of the Sai, they do so in imitation and remembrance of the actions of Hajar. Here, Ibn Arabi references Hajar as the source of imitation, but he suggests that it is only possible to interpret this situation in this way, in other words, that she's a source of legislation, because of the clear statement of the prophet about the spiritual perfection of women in the cases of Mary and Asiya. In other words, and importantly, he suggests that Mary is not simply an exceptional case, although she is also that, but her spiritual perfection makes the spiritual perfection of other women conceivable as well. Well, Hajar may be the source for the obligatory rites of the Hajj, in another passage, Ibn Arabi indicates that Mary was the initiator of a particularly rigorous form of supererogatory fasting, through which she could be said to join the ranks of men. 
and which put her in the company of the prophets, and that her fast was said to surpass even that of the prophet David. So he begins by mentioning the fast of the prophet David, who is said to have fasted one day and then broken his fast the next, and then fasted one day and broken his fast the next uh, throughout the day in this way. Uh, and sometimes this is referred to as, a, as um, respecting the right of God in the day that you're fasting and respecting your own rights or the rights of your body in the day when you break the fast. And then Ibn Arabi, after explaining this, says, But some considered the right of God to be more deserving. They did not consider that which is for God and that which is for the servant to be equal. So they fasted two days and then broke fast for one day. This is the fast of Maryam, upon her be peace. For she took into consideration that men have a degree above them. Thus she said, perhaps I will make this second day of fasting a compensation for this degree. And so it was, for the prophet, peace and blessings of God be upon him, testified to her spiritual perfection, Kamal, as he testified about the perfection of men. And when Mary considered that the witness of two women equaled the witness of one man, she said, two days of fasting for me has the same worth as one day of fasting for men. And so she attained the station of men in this way and equaled David in the virtue of fasting. Thus, one must deal with the soul as Mariam dealt with her soul until she overcame her soul through her intellect. And this is a beautiful illusion for those who understand it. So although, as we have seen above, Ibn Arabi asserts the woman's existential deficiency in degree was unchangeable, here he tells us that Mary attained to the rank of men by virtue, or perhaps he means virtually, uh, precisely by recognizing this deficiency and compensating for it, in this case, through an additional fast. Interestingly, Ibn Arabi goes on to note that if Mary attained the rank of men by virtue of her fasting, Jesus attained nearly to the rank of God himself, since he was able to fast for long, indefinite periods of time and to stay up all night without sleeping, which, he said, made him appear to be like El Qayyum, whom neither weariness nor sleep overtakes, citing uh, the famous Ayatul Kursi, which, Ibn Arabi says, may have led some to claim that he was God himself. And I think this passage is somewhat intriguing because it seems to acknowledge the idea that Mary and Jesus both sort of stretch uh, the existential boundaries of gender and indeed of humanity, here specifically through extraordinary ascetic practices. Uh, yet the degree still remains as existentially, even if it can be compensated for spiritually. Uh, and we see that it persists even into the highest spiritual realms. So, for example, in a passage from the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi asserts that while both men and women may attain the station of perfection, only men attain the station of highest perfection. So if perfection is kamaliyah, uh, the highest state of perfection is ekmaliyah. And here, too, uh, though, he makes an intriguing comment. And we're going to stop at this point maybe talking about 
the degree. <laughs> um, uh, he makes an interesting comment where he says uh, that um, both men and women can share in the station of Nabua, but only men have the station of Risala. So they can be prophets in the general sense, but not messengers. Uh, and I think this is kind of interesting. He doesn't say what women may have made it into this category or been given this category of Nabua. Um, I don't know who else he would have thought of if he didn't think of Mary, uh, but nonetheless, he doesn't directly um, state that. But this idea of distinguishing between Nubua and Risala as categories that men or women could or could not be part of um, does seem to follow his early predecessor, Ibn Hazm's argument about why Mary could be a prophet, because when he uh, talks about the, the verse of the Qur'an that says, we have not sent any before you except men to whom we revealed, it's Arselna. And so that relates to Risala or to messengerhood rather than to prophethood. And Ibn Hazm argued that therefore, although women couldn't be messengers, um, they could be prophets and Mary was therefore not excluded. And we see a kind of interesting ambiguity about women's position as well at the highest levels of spiritual achievement in this very lengthy sec uh, section of the Futuhat where Ibn Arabi discusses as the asnaf al-awliya, the different kinds of saints. And he begins by talking about the saints that come from among the prophets or really the prophets from among the saints, right? Those saints who are prophets, those saints, and then he talks about the saints who are messengers. And then he talks about the saints who are Sadiq, which we know this is attributed to Mary, she's Sadiqah in the Quran. He doesn't connect it to her here though. Uh, and then he talks about the saints who are martyrs or witnesses, shuhada, and here he's very clearly following Quranic categories, right? He's the, the Sadiq, and the uh, 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 the Sadiq and the Shahid, right? The um, the truthful one and the witness or martyr, uh, and the Saleh, the one who does righteous deeds. These three are mentioned together uh, in verse 69 of Surah An-Nisa. So he's following this, and then he goes on to another interesting list. He talks about the saints among the Muslims, the saints among the believers the saints among the devoutly pious, the saints among the truthful, the saints among the humble, the saints among those who, um, who preserve their chastity, the saints among those who remember God. This is also a Quranic list. This comes from Surah 33, verse 35, where uh, very famously it refers to both the male and female in both of these categories, right? The Muslimun and the Muslimat, right? The Muslimin and the Muslimat, the Mu'minin and the Mu'minat, the Qanatin and the Qanatat, the Sadiqin and the Sadiqat, right? And so when he, so he has this whole list of the different categories of saints, as I said, beginning with prophets, then messengers, then the Siddiq, then the Shahid, then the, the witness, then the, the righteous, and then he talks about these other categories, the Muslim, the Mu'min, the devoutly obedient, and so on. He goes down this list. When he makes that transition, he says, 
he mentions both mu'minin and mu'minat, muslimin and mu'minat, khanatin and khanatat. And he says explicitly at the beginning of this section that these include both men and women. And then he says, interestingly, every group we have mentioned includes both men and women, even though he doesn't talk about men and women in those earlier categories. He just talks about it as if there were only men in those categories. But he then says, every group we have mentioned, every group of saints we have mentioned, includes uh, both men and women. <clears throat> For reasons that are not clear to me, Ibn Arabi, in various places, seems to leave open the possibility for women to achieve the status of at least prophethood, as well as the highest levels of sanctity, however ambiguously, at times. But when it comes to Mary, who, given his own interpretation of her status and her importance in the Qur'an, would seem to be the best possible candidate for this status, he remains enigmatically silent. I have not found any text where Ibn Arabi clearly describes her as a Nabiya or a Waliya. As we have seen, Ibn Arabi's most frequent reference to the status of Mary concerns her spiritual perfection, which he mentions regularly. Yet while Mary's spiritual perfection is attributed to her in a prophetic hadith, evidence, it is evidence from the Quran that is usually adduced to assert the possibility that she could have been a prophet. And this evidence is widely known, as I mentioned in the beginning of my paper, the fact that she's the only woman mentioned by name, that uh, she occurs in, in lists of series of prophets uh, in the Quran. Uh, and of course, uh, the most significant argument for her prophethood, 10 minutes, no way. <laughs> I have longer? I'm listening to Nick. I'm going to go with what he says. Okay. Uh, all right. But in many ways, the most significant argument for prophethood would seem to be the fact that, like the prophet Muhammad, Mary has a direct personal encounter with the angel Gabriel, the angel of Revelation, an encounter usually understood to be unique to prophets. Other women, for example, the wife of Abraham or the mother of Moses, did indeed receive inspiration, right, or wahi from God. But Mary alone has both an auditory and a visual encounter with the angel. Again, many theological descriptions of prophethood talk about this visually, visual element of seeing the angel as key to being uh, a, a basis for prophethood. Um, and of course, what the angel delivers to her with his breath is the word of God uh, in the form of the miraculously conceived uh, child, uh, Jesus. And one may even say that Mary's experience of the angel is more intimate, although less verbal, uh, than that of the prophet Muhammad. For the angel does not merely deliver the sound of the words of God into her ears, but also delivers the very life-giving breath of God into her body. Uh, Ibn Anabi spends a good deal of time discussing this miraculous reception and conception, as you may be aware. Um, however, when Ibn Arabi addresses this event, as he does in multiple places, he is primarily concerned with the relevance and significance it has for his metaphysics of gender, including the relationship of activity and receptivity as they manifest in the male and the female. 
His unusual interpretation of these two events, however, gives no indication that Mary's encounter with the angel suggests her prophethood. Indeed, he often seems at pains to understand Mary as the perfectly passive receptacle for the angelic divine spirit that creates the child inside her. This is in contrast to his representation of Adam as active in relation to the creation of Eve, and he sees these two as complementary events. The creation of Eve from Adam without a mother and the creation of Jesus uh, from Mary without a father. And this is despite the fact that in the biblical account of Eve's creation from Adam, which has influenced Islamic uh, hadith and also Islamic commentary on the Quran, uh, it said that Adam was put to sleep. God put Adam to sleep before he pulled out the rib um, uh, to, make, uh, to, to make Eve. And I think of few states more passive than sleep, uh, really. And uh, in fact, the notion of a sleeping Adam from which Eve is drawn out is a far more passive image than that of the heroic Quranic image of Mary struggling and laboring alone in the desert to give birth to Jesus. And I have two children. No one can tell me that giving birth is a passive experience. Not even Ibn Arabi. Um, and yet, uh, we read in the Fuzuhat al-Makiyah that God did not allow Jesus to be the locust that receives the activity of Mary, lest man should be the locust that receives the activity of the woman as Eve had received from Adam. Instead, Ibn Arabi tells us that Jesus received the activity of the angel who was imaginalized in the form of a man. Hence, Jesus resembles his father, an angel, a spirit, and a male. Now, activity and receptivity are a complementary conceptual pair deeply embedded in metaphysical discussions about creation and procreation and about the relationships between God and the world and between men and women. But of course, they're not just complementary, they're also hierarchically ordered concepts. And Ibn Arabi, as I said, is rather explicit about this in many places. But in this final part of the paper, I am almost done, um, I want to think about some of the ways in which activity and receptivity relate to the states of prophethood and sainthood, uh, and also how they relate to another set of concepts that are important in Ibn Arabi's thought. Uh, and in the Quranic account of Jesus and Mary, that is namely the complementarity of word and silence uh, and the way in which both word and silence are transcended through this very important Sufi concept of illusion or ishara. Um, prophethood can be understood as having both an active and a receptive component. A prophet must be a priori a perfectly receptive locus for the divine word or message which he or she has been chosen for. One might suggest that any willful activity on the part of the prophet at the moment that the divine message is conveyed may somehow distort the word or compromise its delivery. Um, Indeed, the Islamic tradition tells us that when revelation came to the prophet, at least sometimes he would fall into a kind of trance-like state in which he was prone and helpless before the onslaught of revelation, recovering only once it had been delivered. Ibn Arabi suggests something similar about Mary. He says that when the angel first appeared to Mary in the form of a man, she was naturally frightened and that he intended to do her harm in some way, and she sought refuge from God. Ibn Arabi says that if the word as Jesus had been transmitted to her at that moment, Jesus would have turned out very ugly and disfigured because of the alarmed uh, and therefore active 
even if defensive state of Mary. Uh, and therefore the angel reassured her that he had been sent by God, at which point she relaxed. Uh, he says at one point, transitioning from a state of cubbed to bust, of, of closeness and, and um, uh, defensiveness to openness. The state of passivity and receptivity to the del deliverance of the divine word is a characteristic of all prophets as prophets, that is, as Nebi'in, according to Ibn Arabi. A prophet is defined by the reception of divine words or commands, even if those words command or commands pertain only to himself or herself. Uh, it is only when the prophet is charged with conveying these divine commands or laws to others that he is considered a messenger, rasul, or one who is sent, mab'uth, um, by this definition, Mary would seem to fit the category of Nabuah, for she does indeed receive a message from God, but one that communicates to her directly only a description of what she has been called to do. She is not asked to convey the message to anyone else. In fact, as I will discuss in a minute, she is called to do the opposite. Receptivity to divine grace or communication without the responsibility of explicitly transmitting it is also a quality associated with the saints as distinct from the messengers. For example, the messengers convey what they received from God explicitly and verbally, whereas the saints convey the gifts they have received existentially through a kind of spiritual transparency that obviates the need for verbal communication. As it is often said, when one sees a saint, one should immediately remember God just from seeing them. Uh, and while the messengers are given miracles or signs to be performed in public as evidence of, the, of their providential mission, the miracles of the saints are supposed to remain hidden, like the food in Mary's locked cell, a secret gift for the saint alone, a pure blessing, karama, for the saint, not one with an instrumental or evidentiary or public purpose. For Ibn Arabi, a state of prophethood without the obligation to deliver a divine message to the broader community is what he calls general prophethood, Nabu'a Amma. And it, in at least one point in the Futuhat, he identifies that with Walaya. And it would seem that on all accounts, Mary fits Ibn Arabi's category both of Nabu'a Amma and of Walaya. As I mentioned above, Mary was not asked to convey the message that was given to her verbally. Jesus is the ultimate word from God that re she received from the breath of the angel Gabriel. And she does indeed convey this word into the world. But just as she received the word from the angel bodily rather than merely orally, so too does she deliver the word with her body, not with her speech. Indeed, after giving birth to Jesus with her body, she is instructed to maintain a strict fast of silence and to refuse to speak to anyone. When her people see the child and assume the worst about what she's done, even then, with her very life really on the line, she maintains her fast of silence. Instead of defending herself verbally, she communicates through illusion, pointing to the infant in such a way as to suggest that they should speak with and to him. Although her family are furious by what they take as an insulting suggestion on Mary's part, her innocence and silence are vindicated 
when the infant to whom she gestures speaks in clear and lucid words, communicating his own spiritual state explicitly and his mother's innocence implicitly. Jesus is the Rasul. What is Mary? I'm going to just finish with one uh, 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 statement about silence. Um, Ibn Arabi, we saw at the beginning of the paper, describes silence as one of the defining spiritual characteristics of the Abdal, these 40 saints. But he tells us that a saint can never be completely silent, because silence is a purely negative, salbi attribute. And of course, the saint has been charged with remembering God all the time, dhikrullah. So it can't be completely silent. So he says, for those on the path who choose silence as their means, they are only outwardly silent. Inwardly, they are always invoking God. And he he also says that those who choose this path of silence are given by God an extraordinary ability of ishara, of illusion that even though they have, like Mary, vowed this fast of silence, they are able through gestures to communicate what they need with incredible accuracy uh, and efficacy. And of course, as we've seen, illusion is the very final act that Mary performs in the Quran. So Mary strikes us in her chronic portrayal as one of Ibn Arabi's silent saints outwardly silent, inwardly filled with the divine word, communicating only through illusion, allowing the divine word to communicate itself and be brought into the world simply by her presence, by her body. Indeed, Ibn Arabi cites Mary as a paradigmatic paradigmatic case for this kind of illusion. And what is illusion except silent communication, a communication through the body rather than through words, And in bringing together silence and communication, illusion transcends them both. We cannot say that Ibn Arabi either accepts or rejects the notion of Mary's prophethood or sainthood, since he does not express these judgments explicitly. But we can say that Mary, as she is portrayed in the Quran, is certainly not excluded from sainthood or prophethood as they are defined by Ibn Arabi. Indeed, she embodies some of the classical elements of Nabuwa Amma, General Nabuwa and Walaya, and is sometimes, as in the case of illusion, pre- presented as the perfect case for these descriptions. Thank you. <laughs>